Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to Chasing Poker Greatness. Before we jump into today's show, I want to take a second to talk about my Bluffing with Initiative Masterclass that is happening this Saturday. I have a confession that's somewhat embarrassing that I would like to admit to you. Over the course of my poker coaching career, I've had many ideas for product launches, masterclasses, subscription programs, etc., And at the end of the day, the thing that has always held me back is that I wasn't sure if you would gain enough value from the product that I released. I even completed a course, Home Game Hero, 80% of the way through with this course. And then then I met up with Nick Howard, who showed me the methodology that he uses in his stable. And it caused me to look back at my course and think, man, this thing is just not good enough. It's not ready to be released yet. I bring all of this up because this Saturday's masterclass is a thing that I am exceptionally proud of and supremely confident that it will give you an incredible bang for your buck. At the end of the day, you're going to make more money. You'll be plugged in to a supportive community of players who, like you, are striving for poker greatness, and you'll support the production of Chasing Poker Greatness. But to get all this stuff, including the bonuses, part two with Matt Berkey and James Splitsuit Sweeney, you'll have to take initiative, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and reserve your seat before the card closes Saturday afternoon. If there is a chance that you're super pumped and you want to get in, and you'll forget about signing up before the cart closes on Saturday, take a moment right now to head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and get it done. I will send you the replay if you miss it. And like I have mentioned before, there is a 100% money-back guarantee in the off chance that you show up and aren't satisfied with the knowledge that you gain. And now today's episode of Chasing Poker Greatness is WSOP Day. We're going to break down one of the most famous bluffs of all time between Chris Moneymaker and Sammy Farha, and then we're going to break down another bluff that was ran by Joe Cata in 2018 nearing the WSOP main event final table bubble. There's nothing cooler to me than when somebody runs a massive bluff in a moment of extreme pressure with prestige and millions of dollars on the line in front of a giant audience You just can't beat it, and it's one of the reasons why I fell in love with this great game of poker in the first place. So without any further ado, here is the WSOP Day on Chasing Poker Greatness. Today in Hero Bluff Week, we have hands from the WSOP. One of them goes down in poker lore as being the hand that made the poker boom, right? It was the catalyst. Chris Moneymaker bluffs Sammy Farha in a classic hand. You can't have a WSOP day without talking about this bluff because it's just too iconic. I I can't resist. I can't help myself. The second hand after this is a little bit more obscure and recent, 
but still a pretty cool hand to break down. Thomas, welcome back. Good to have you, sir. Thanks, Brad. Happy to be back. All right, let's dive in to one Samuel J. Farha. I don't know if that's his middle initial or if his full name is Samuel, but we're going to make some assumptions here. Christopher Moneymaker sitting at $4.6 million. Mr. Farha has $3.7 million. When this hand goes down, they are heads up for the WSOP main event title, world champion forever and ever and ever. Amen. Moneymaker opens to 100K with a king of spades, seven of hearts. Farha goes ahead and defends with a queen of spades and a nine of hearts. What do we think of preflop? Preflop seems very standard here. Heads up, you get to play super wide ranges. I don't think that queen nine has much merit in getting three bet here. Uh, So everything seems very clean and standard. Nothing really that I would change, even going back in time, except for the WSOP putting the blinds up on this hand so that I could, you know, give the audience what the blinds were. But uh, can't always get what you want, Brad. Yes, yeah, lost in poker lore. They maybe they didn't even have blinds back then. They were just you know raising it up. And what they what they felt was good. Moneymaker thought you know hundred K is good here. He raises it up. And we get a flop of nine of spades, deuce of diamonds, six of spades. Sammy Farha flops top pair with a backdoor flush draw. Moneymaker flops king high with a backdoor king high flush draw. Farha checks. Moneymaker goes ahead and checks behind. What do we think of Moneymaker's check behind? It's I, I can see uh, checking back with this exact hand, but I also think that it's a reasonable hand to go ahead and start betting. Uh, on flush turns or rivers, it's a really good bluffing candidate. Uh, on an eight turn, you've picked up sufficient equity to go ahead and continue barreling. And there's going to be, even if uh, Farha has a nine, there's going to be a lot of turn and rivers that you're going to be able to get folds on, specifically like jack through ace. Uh, so I, I think that betting is probably slightly better than checking. And when you look at the hand from the perspective of potential turns, we want to be able to rep flushes, right? Credibly. And we just don't check behind a lot of our flush draws here on the flop when we're playing heads up. So this is a little bit of an omen for what's to come, but I just don't think that when we check back, we have as much repability on the turn of the river. So if we're going to try to win this hand, we need to start out by betting. It's really the best way that we can put together a triple barrel bluff. We can start repping some flushes. We're going to start repping some straight cards. It's just a much cleaner way to play the hand. In my opinion, with all that said, moneymaker does check back. The turn is the eight of spades. Farha goes ahead and bets 300 K into 210 K. What do we think about Farha sizing here? He goes for the overbet when he has top pair with the queen high flush draw. I think an overbet with this exact hand is a, a really weird decision uh, in the modern day. Uh, I do think it's likely to be the best hand and we can go for value. I don't know that it's strong enough to warrant a bet size this large. I, I suspect his idea was that he wanted to deny equity or get maximum value from the super wet board, uh, all of the draws available and chose to bet huge for that reason. 
So after everything that I said on the flop, Moneymaker decides, hey, this eight of spades, I turn second up flush draw and I have an open ender. I'm just going for it. Goes ahead and puts in a raise to 800K, trying to rep a flush or a straight. I think in actuality, the hands that he's most likely repping are like turn sets of eights and some turn two pair. Those are more likely than any sort of flush. What do we think about this raise from Moneymaker? So I think on the surface, it looks like a very natural and good raise. But if he's not checking the flush draws on the flop, then I don't think he gets to do this. And I don't think that he's going to raise a set or two pair at this point because of the overbet size uh, from Sammy Farha, especially when he does have a lot of flushes in his range at this point, and you probably don't. Um, I don't think that either of these players were completely aware of that idea and at this point in time. So it seems natural. You have an open ender. You have a king high flush draw. It's a, a really good. You've got a lot of equity, and you can probably bluff every river just about. So it seems probably like the better line at the time, uh, but theoretically probably worse. It's hard to know exactly what they're trying to rep or what they're thinking. I mean, in Moneymaker's defense, he's an amateur. This is his first live tournament ever. And so, like you said, it looks like a good natural bluff raise on the turn. We have a semi-bluff. We can get there on the river, and we have some fold equity potential. I think that what he's actually repping is a lot different than what he thinks he's repping. But from Sammy Farha's perspective, that really doesn't matter because Sammy just has his top pair with the queen high flush draw. And even if Moneymaker turns two pair, turns a set, he's still in quite a bit of trouble. And with that said, Sammy does make the call here on the turn, even though Moneymaker is not repping a ton. I will say an interesting thing happens. Former Chasing Poker Greatness guest Matt Savage was actually calling this tournament. And on the turn, Matt announced that Moneymaker had called and Moneymaker had fairly emphatically said, no, I'm raising uh, because of the way that he, he said raise verbally and then he threw the chips in for the call. Matt didn't hear it. So he got a little confused. I don't know if Sam Farha could have used that information in any way. I think that for the way Moneymaker's approaching this hand him being more emphatic actually makes me think that he's stronger than otherwise. It's difficult to say. Evaluating these live reads is always very tricky. There's some very obvious ones, but this is one that I wouldn't put too much weight into just because I don't have a great sense of which direction it would trend. Something is interesting about this hand. So on the river, you know, the river is the three of hearts, so nobody improves. Farha still has his top pair. Moneymaker's got his busted straight draw and his busted flush draw. Farha checks. Moneymaker jams it in. And spoiler alert, Farha doesn't make the call because it's not the Farha boom, it's the Moneymaker boom. What do you think about Moneymaker's rip here? What do you think about Farha's fold? So I, I think if you're going to raise the turn, uh, you, you've got to fire a brick river with this exact hand. It's it's a really good candidate, blocking straights, blocking strong flushes, 
Uh, I, I think you will generate a lot of fold equity versus the vast majority of opponents here. Uh, Barha's decision is super interesting on whether to call. And I guess it comes down to whether you think that Moneymaker would check back flush draws on the flop or whether he would ever take this line with a set or two pair. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, Brad, because I'm not sure what I would do in Farha's shoes. My thoughts are I don't exactly know what I would do. I need all of the information. Number one, how long did it take Moneymaker in real time without any editing to make this decision on the turn? Did he tank? Think about it. Was there an actual thought? Because with a turn set or a turn to pair, there's going to be an actual thought because there's an actual decision here. You need to know, like, should I be raising here for value with these hands or should I just be calling? So if he acted very, very quickly, then I think he's more likely to be bluffing. So if, if Moneymaker very quickly puts extra money in the pot, I would say, okay, now we can eliminate the hands that he's actually repping, which are the two pair and the turn set. And I'm more likely to call the river if he thinks about it. You know, if he thinks about it for 30 seconds or a minute, then I think that it seems more credible that he can have a wider value range and, you know, be turning to pair, shoving to pair on the river to try to get max value. Even a hand like 710, if he's got that in his range, where he turns a straight, this is another potential value hand that Moneymaker has. What's interesting about this hand, and I alluded to it earlier, was that when I first got into playing poker, maybe six or seven years into my career, I remember watching this hand and thinking, ah, Farha, this is such an obvious call. I remember this thought, and now that I'm 16 years into my career, I have sort of the alternative view of eh, maybe it's not as cut and dry as I once thought, right? Maybe there is some sort of confirmation bias because I know what both opponents have uh, six or seven years into my career compared to now. But it's very close. You know, it's not a slam dunk decision either way in Farha's shoes. So I think there's another factor that I hadn't considered, and that's if Farha thinks that his edge is really large versus Chris Moneymaker, and he's not entirely sure on the spot. Maybe he thinks calling slightly better than folding. Maybe he passes on the spot uh, to still be in the tournament and still be competing uh, if, if he thinks his edge is large enough. It's tough. I mean, he's... 3.7 million he started the hand with, and he's already put in a third of his stack. So that is a thought you could have. I just don't know how credible it is considering the amount of money you've already put in. Like you might not get another shot to build up your stack and Moneymaker makes a big mistake before, you know, we're just in like jam time with a small amount of big blinds and it just turns into a crapshoot. It's completely fair. And uh, yeah, so these are pretty much final thoughts on this bluff. Thank God Sam Farha decided to fold because Chris Moneymaker is the reason why pretty much all of us are able to make a living playing this game, right? Why the aspirational dreams of being a poker professional live today. We had the Moneymaker boom off of his back. So thank goodness for Chris Moneymaker. I'm sure Sam Farha is perfectly okay with his fold here as well, considering how much money the poker boom likely made him over the years. So really it's a win-win situation for both players involved. And after the break here, we're going to have a hand with another former WSOP main event champion going for a run to another final table, trying to do 
the repeat in a day and age when a repeat really is just an unfathomable thing. You don't want to miss that coming up after the break. Coach Brad here. We're at the midpoint of the show, and I just wanted to take a second to express my love and gratitude to you, my listener. Without you, this show just wouldn't be possible. And I have been floored by the overwhelmingly positive responses that I've gotten over the last nine months. And I just wanted you to know that I very much look forward to the journey over the next weeks, months, and years of producing Chasing Poker Greatness. So thank you very much. You have my eternal gratitude. And now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back after the break. Hand number two also takes place at the World Series of Poker. In 2018, there are 11 players left. The blinds are 250K, 500K. And the hand in question involves former WSOP main event champion Joe Cata versus Alexander Linsky, who it looks like is the chip leader of the WSOP at this time. The hand starts out with Joe Cata sitting on a stack of 10.8 million, opening the button to 1.2 million. To put it in comparison, it's not super relevant. However, Linsky does have 50.3 million to start this hand. So he's got a sizable stack. He's got five times more chips than Joe Cata. We open the button to 1.2 million with Ace of Hearts, Six of Spades. Linsky defends with the King of Clubs, Nine of Hearts from the big blind. What do we think about this open and this defend? Uh, Both of these spots seem very standard. The sizing used is good being shallow. It may even be better just to min-click it up to 1 million, but the sizing's good. I don't see a ton of merit for doing anything else for either player. Me neither. This seems pretty cut and dry across the board. Uh, We get a flop of King of Spades, Ten of Diamonds, Five of Hearts. So Linsky with his King Nine flops top pair. Joe Cata flops an air ball. Linsky checks. Cata bets $1 million into 2.9, so 33% pot. And Linsky calls. Anything questionable thus far? Uh, so there's two options on this flop. The first is to take kind of a range betting strategy, which I suspect he is doing here. Uh, and the other would be to bet a little bit larger and have some checks. I don't think that he's going to elicit many folds on this flop. It's just really hard to not have something on this flop, whether it's a gutter ball, a pair, or what have you. So if he does bet this flop, I think that he needs to plan on barreling a decent amount. Otherwise, he's just going to be losing money on this bet. Uh, I'm okay with either decision. I don't know that I agree with you. What would be your defense range here coming out of the big blind facing Cata's open? Uh, so in a cash game specifically, I guess I would smash this forward. In a tournament with the price, I am going to be wider. So maybe I do have a lot more air balls uh, in this exact context. Uh, but specifically here, I would probably be defending probably suited two gappers, any king offsuit or or suited, 
any ace is going to get defended very easily. Any pair, probably some even like seven, eight offsuit, I guess, at the price we're getting. And some of the hands that hit this board that have gut shots and straight draws are going to be three betting some percentage of the time. So like, you know, there are 16 combos of queen Jack. Four of them are pretty much always three betting here. I would think all the suited varieties of queen Jack. Uh, so I'd chime in. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I don't think queen Jack's going to do much three betting. Uh, and if it does, it's just going to be going all in just to deny equity and maybe fold out some hands that dominate it just because of how shallow they are. I think this is a little bit out of our uh, typical comfort zone with being a tournament hand versus a cash hand. It's true. You know, Kata only starts with 10.8 million. He's opening to 1.2. So, you know, ripping it with queen Jack suited, I I think is just got to be vastly superior as a, an overall strategy facing what is likely to be a super wide button opening range. But either way, some of the hands that, you know, Linsky can have are going to be three betting pre-flop, some of the stronger hands, and then he's going to have a lot of, a lot of whiffs too. So I'm actually, I'm down with C betting range. Kata has a range advantage here. So need to be betting very frequently with the thought in the back of your mind that we can apply pressure on some future streets and you know getting some good runouts so with that said linsky just calls here is there any merit to linsky raising with top pair i don't think that it makes a whole lot of sense he doesn't need a lot of protection here i think jokata can be very wide and i don't really want to fold out his bluffs here and just let him continue with the stronger portions of his range so i i personally wouldn't be raising here perfect me neither so we get a turn that is the Jack of Hearts. Linsky checks. Kata bets 2.6 million into 4.9 million. Let's talk about this Jack, how that interacts with Kata's range, and whether or not you like the sizing. So on the flop, I said that I like barreling a lot of turn cards. I do think this is one of them. Uh, if the flush does come in having the ace of hearts is also a a very small benefit but it is a benefit here uh and we can just put a lot of pressure on uh joe Cata, especially if he is calling king four offsuit or king four suited pre-flop and then obviously calling the flop uh he's gonna have a lot of you mean linsky 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 i'm sorry uh yes he's gonna have a lot of hands that are in kind of a tough spot either here or on the river. Uh, so I think barreling this turn is fine. We also picked pick up the gutter ball for a little bit additional equity. Uh, and you probably have to plan on firing some brick rivers, though. I think you have to plan on firing most every river if you're barreling this turn with this specific hand. Any river that's not a four-liner. I think those are those are the you know, the bad cards on the river, but actually a, a queen gives you, queen gives you the nuts. So that's an okay card to barrel. The nine is not going to be a great card for you to bet, but anything other than a nine or a king, I think a king, king and a 10 are, are not great cards. A jack's not a great card either. So any card other than the cards that pair the board or a nine, I think you just have to bet if you're Joe Cata, if you decide to go ahead and bet the turn here, because the jack gives Joe Cata the nuts in his range. Linsky doesn't have that benefit, right? Like Cata's got all the two pairs. He's got all the sets. He's got all the straights. Linsky has queen nine 
for really his only straight combination where he turns a gut shot. So Kata's got the ability to represent all of the super strong hands and Linsky just really doesn't have that. So I really love what Joe Kata is doing here. Once he bets the turn, having the intention to bet the river, I would assume, you know, I would assume that there are many, many rivers he's planning on filling up the chamber and emptying the clip. So Linsky calls once again, this board is King 10, five Jack. There was a turn flush draw. So two hearts on the board. That's what Thomas meant when he was saying the benefit, we can rep the nut flush on some heart runouts. Really Cata just wants a break here. I think he, he's hoping for a break so that he can stick it in and he does get a break. It is the three of diamonds and Linsky checks Cata goes ahead and piles in his 7.15 million with a little over 10 million. Linsky folds. Let's talk about, I guess, number one, Kata's rip, and then number two, Linsky's fold. So we talked about how Kata was going to have to follow through on brick rivers, especially, or almost any river, and this is clearly one of those cases. I do think that Linsky's range is pretty capped to about what he has uh, when he, he doesn't raise off on the flop or the turn at any point. Uh, so Linsky needs to be able to find calls with hands like this uh, if he doesn't want to fold everything. And I believe that Linsky is just, go- just folding his entire range on the river here. So Kata's play ends up being extremely profitable. Extremely exploitive and extremely profitable. The only hand that Linsky may not fold is queen nine if he turns a straight and opts to slow play it by just flatting versus raising. And this is another consideration here is that if Linsky starts shoving when he has queen nine, then you're absolutely right. He has no hands that are going to call the river here. So Kat is just printing money when he makes the shove. And we didn't even really get into it, but you know this is close to the bubble for the final table at the WSOP main event. So there, there is a lot of pressure on both of these players. This is a fairly significant pot where, where if Linsky does bust Kata, then there are only a couple players away from being at the WSOP main event final table. So a lot of credit to Joe Kata for recognizing the exploitable nature of Linsky's range construction here. And Following through, making a great play. I guess that's one of the reasons why he is a WSOP main event champion. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. Tomorrow we have WPT Day on Hero Bluff Week. Going to go over a classic hand with one Isaac Haxton and a more recent hand with Jake Schwartz. Tune in and we'll see you tomorrow. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and if today is a day that is before June 27th, 2020, you still have a chance to get into the Bluffing with Initiative Masterclass by heading to ChasingPokerGreatness.com. Once this opportunity is gone, I cannot promise you when you'll have the chance to take advantage of it again, so get in there, ChasingPokerGreatness.com. Sign up for the Bluffing with Initiative Masterclass. I'll see you on Saturday.